This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Produced by the iLab at WBUR. Boston. Hi, this is Steve. Just a quick word of warning that we'll be discussing intimate partner violence on this episode. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So I have a story for you. I was 27 years old. I had just moved to Portland, Oregon. I had just finished hiking on the Pacific Crest Trail and came here to um, make my life anew. And I was staying for a while with a woman who was really, really one of my dearest, dearest friends. I met her less than a year after my mom died, and uh, she was a few years older. So almost immediately... We became uh, not only really close, but there was this dynamic where I was essentially enamored of her and she of me. She loved me so much and I loved her so much. And often people, when they met us, would think that we were actually lovers. Hmm. And she would say these extraordinary things to me, like, nobody will ever love you the way I love you. Sometimes I imagine myself what I was doing on the day you were born. And of course, not only is this exciting, I think, for anyone to hear when they're on the other end of that kind of love, but, you know, now I can really look back and see that I was really needing that particular kind of love because I was an orphan. Mm -hmm. I was grieving the death of my mom. I didn't have a father. I was really alone. And this friend opened up her heart to me and she felt very healing to me. Even though what I've come to understand is her love was extremely wounding to me, too. Hmm. And it's taken me years to recover from the relationship I had with her because I knew in the relationship this was happening. But later, I really came to understand it. And that is that it was an emotionally abusive relationship. And she did a lot of um, things that, you know, later I could see more clearly were really not in my best interest, that were really destructive and manipulative and controlling. One example, and this was very, uh, the the kind of beginning of the end for me, Mm. is that uh, I had just met Brian, my husband, and we'd gone out on 
one or two dates. I hardly knew him. And I came home from one of our dates. And I sort of sat on my friend's bed and I exuberantly told her about this guy, Brian, I had just met. And my friend said to me, do you love him more than you love me? Uh oh. And I said, of course not. I don't even love him. You know, mm-hmm. I only like him. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I could, our relationship could last another three days and I could never see him again for all I knew at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. And she said, will you do something for me? Just one thing. Don't see him ever again. Wow. That's what I said inside myself. Wow. And I said, well, what do you mean? Why would I do that? And she said, I just don't want you to see him again. If you really love me, why can't you do this one little thing? She was extremely articulate. And so she had this way of being able to take things that I said and sort of turn them around so they fit into her vision. You said you don't even love him, but you love me. That's exactly what she said. Yeah. And and I could never win an argument because she was so smart and she knew how to, to use language in a way that left me feeling kind of befuddled. And also the only thing I could ever say is, well, that just doesn't sound reasonable. And what took me forever to come to grips with, and I think every person who's ever been in an emotionally abusive relationship relates to this, is that I couldn't see clearly what was healthy and what was unhealthy, what was reasonable and what was abusive. And part of why I couldn't see that clearly is that the upside was so high up. She was an extraordinary woman. Right. She was one of the best friends I've ever had. That still feels true, sadly. And I got really enmeshed in that, um, thinking that uh, she couldn't be so bad because she was so good. Right. And I did disentangle myself. But it took me years to to psychologically disentangle myself. You know, I think that being in an emotionally abusive relationship, the, the deepest loss is the loss of the self, the loss of the ability to think clearly about not only what you want, but who you even are. How mm-hmm. did you get here? And I was mired in that for a long time, well after that relationship ended. Yeah. Well, when we're thinking about doing this episode, Cheryl, my mind immediately flashed to the amazing, beautiful, heartbreaking Alice Munro's story, Runaway, which is from the story collection of the same name. And it is the most beautiful description of exactly the dynamic that you're talking about, the erosion of the self in, in the context of a love relationship. It's about this young woman named Carla who initially runs away when she's 18 with this older guy, Clark. And I'll just sort of read some passages of Alice Munro's beautiful prose. Clark's preoccupation with the traffic, his curt answers, his narrowed eyes, everything about him that ignored her, even his slight irritation at her giddy delight, all of that thrilled her. She saw him as the sturdy architect of the life ahead of them, herself as a captive, her submission both proper and exquisite. So she travels off with this guy, and then it turns, as in your relationship. Uh He was mad at her all the time. He acted as if he hated her. There was nothing she could do right. There was nothing she could say. Living with him was driving her crazy. Sometimes she thought she was already crazy. He hadn't hurt her physically, but he hated her. He could not stand it when she cried, and she could not help crying because he was so mad. She did not know what to do. And then we get to this culminating moment where she... She works up the nerve to leave him, and she gets on a bus, and this is how that sounds. She could not picture it, herself riding on the subway or streetcar, talking to new people, living among hordes of people every day who were not Clark. 
a life, a place chosen for that specific reason that it would not contain Clark? The strange and terrible thing coming clear to her about that world of the future as she now pictured it was that she would not exist there. She would only walk around and open her mouth and speak and do this and do that. She would not really be there. And what was strange about it was that she was doing all this. She was riding on this bus in the hope of recovering herself, taking charge of her own life, with nobody glowering over her, nobody's mood infecting her with misery. But what would she care about? How would she know that she was alive? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a very extreme version, but it is what you're talking about and what we're going to talk about on this episode, which is relationships that are emotionally abusive, where the self starts to erode. That's what the common thread is, is that people lose sight of who they are independent of that person. And often because the abusive partner is explicitly saying you're nobody. That's right. That you belong to me and I am the only one who will love you. And there is a way in which it it can become this incredibly psychologically, like a psychological addiction. And this is why it's so hard to recover from these relationships. We're going to focus today on romantic relationships where there is an emotional abuse. But we know that these dynamics exist in all relationships, siblings, friends, parent-child relations, and so on. And also, I think that it's important to acknowledge here, too, that a lot of us for a long time as a culture have been really unclear about right. what emotional abuse is. When when somebody says, listen, my partner punched me in the face, we all recognize that right. as abuse. With emotional abuse, it's different. And I think that this is also one of the things that's so terrible about it is it's very isolating. Yeah. And so I think it's important that we really think about the difference between healthy conflict, healthy relationships do have conflict. Right. Healthy relationships have people who sometimes behave badly. Right. But there is a difference and there's you know, a spectrum. And in researching for this show, I depended a lot on the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Their website is thehotline.org. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely full of really great information about intimate partner violence of all sorts, from emotional to sexual to physical. Mm -hmm. But one of the things they said that I read on the website that was very helpful to me is they really have a list of like, what does a healthy relationship look like? What does an unhealthy relationship look like? What does an abusive relationship look like? Right. For example, in a healthy relationship, you talk openly about problems and listen to one another. In unhealthy relationships, you don't communicate. When problems arise, you, you either fight or you don't discuss them at all. Right. In abusive relationships, the communication is hurtful, threatening, insulting, and demeaning. And so I think it's important to do this for many reasons. But the biggest one to me is that so many people in abusive relationships can't see clearly what's Correct. happening exactly. because there is conflict in healthy relationships. There is sometimes disrespect or you you aren't as considerate as you should be of your partner. You aren't communicating as honestly or openly as you should be. And so a lot of times abusers will sort of hide their abuse within this kind of context of like, this is how love is. Yeah. So Cheryl, one of the writers who is really precise and, and beautiful about this is Rima Zaman. She's an award-winning author, speaker, and actress, and artist from Bangladesh. She's the Oregon Literary Arts Writer of Color Fellow for 2018 and she's the author of the forthcoming memoir, I Am Yours, which is available for pre-order now. Uh, and her work has been published in The Guardian, The Rumpus, Narratively, Shape, and elsewhere. And she writes so precisely 
about what it is like to slowly fall into this pattern. Because the other thing that we'll talk about is this doesn't happen immediately at once. And so we want to, you know, bring her into the studio to help us answer these very complex and, and painful letters. And she does happen to be here in the studio. Yes. Rima, welcome to Dear Sugars. Welcome. Thank you so much. So, Rima, we were so excited to talk with you, partly because we read an essay that's really uh, sort of an extract from this forthcoming memoir. Would you read a little excerpt of that so our listeners can hear what we're talking about? Absolutely. So this essay that you're speaking about, it's called Men Are Not a, a Riddle for Women to Solve. And it's about the marriage I was in in my mid-20s. My husband at the time had just picked me up from the train station and we're discussing our day and he talks about work and I reply, that's wonderful. I shape my words delicately. Not too earnest, not too casual. Unless I'm careful, he'll spin my sincerity into sarcasm or hear casual as lacking affection. Why are you wearing so much makeup, he frowns. You're supposed to be a feminist. What? I catch myself. I'm sorry. I had an audition. He opens the glove compartment, grabs takeout napkins, wipes my lips, cheeks, eyes. Like a sunflower turning towards the burning sun, I lean into him, complicit in my erasure. Abuse always begins small. I've come to realize that a relationship works because I excel at belonging to him, deferring to his ego and temper, calming his jarring moods using sex, words, distraction, humor, and food, extinguishing fires he lights with his family, friends, bosses. I don't merely walk on glass. I dance so delicately on glass that the tinkling song of my toes upon shards sounds lovely to all witnessing ears. Dancing upon glass is the emotional labor of the peacekeeping and ultimate enabling in an abusive relationship. Wow. Yeah. Rima, that's so powerful. And that scene you just read captures so well so many of the dynamics, right, that are mm -hmm. present in emotional yes. abuse. And I'm curious about, can you back up and tell us a bit of your story? So I am from Bangladesh. I was born there in 1983, and I'm the eldest daughter of two very, very loving parents who were married in an arranged marriage. And I was raised with the firm education that a daughter and a wife and a mother's and a woman's duty is to be compassionate, graceful, patient right. towards everyone, especially the men in her life. Mm -hmm. So my father is a brilliant man. He worked tirelessly to give us an expensive private school education, and he was under a lot of stress. And he had a temper growing up. He's very different now because we have evolved as a family, but growing up, we knew to understand his temper the way we knew to respect his brilliance. Mm -hmm. And I was taught that men are allowed a wide emotional girth, right. that we're supposed to give them allowances to tend to their greatness. So I saw my mom always behave immaculately, perform beautifully, all to maintain the social harmony of right. the family mm -hmm. and, and his well-being. And any demonstration of impatience would be an egregious failure on her part. Right. And so naturally, I grew up modeling my beloved mother. And I have, to this day, a very close relationship with my father. And one of the things I prided myself on growing up is that 
I would be able to find magical combinations of words to calm him down. And whenever I was able to do that, I flushed with this feeling of achievement, Mm -hmm. specialness. Mm -hmm. It was a special kind of intimacy and closeness that only he and I shared. And then compounded with that, my childhood, I experienced a great deal of sexual violence and wound after wound and assault after assault. Mm. And what happened was that the people around me neglected to support me or protect me. So I just started to feel like my job on this planet was to be helpful, to be the caretaker of everyone else. And any kind of pain that I went through wasn't significant because I tried to speak of my pain before and it had been, I'd been met with abject silence. Mm-hmm. So to find myself in an abusive relationship, it was so easy for me to just remain quiet and complicit in that mm-hmm. pain for a long time. Yeah. Right. So what about the particulars of this relationship? How did that start? What was it like at the beginning when I assume things were, you know, harmonious and you were in love? It absolutely it was beyond harmonious. We were, I thought we were a match made in heaven. How old you know, are you at this point? I, I was 25, and then we got married when I was 26. We got married very quickly. So it's kind of whirlwind. It was whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very charismatic, very uh, codependent, very quickly. He needed me a lot, and I loved that. It gave me such a thrill, and it reminded me of the dynamic I had with my father, yeah. mm-hmm. of feeling like his chosen apple of his eye. And were there any doubts? I mean, what were the first indications that this relationship was not as healthy as it should be. Right. Um, His temper. He had a very uh, manic and temper-riddled personality. And all of us, his family, my family, we thought it was a demonstration of his passion, his joie de vie for life. And because I'm a naturally calm and patient person, we thought, well, that makes me perfectly suited for him. He would be the fire. I would be the water. His mother told me that when we first met, you are going to do what none of us else have been able oh to do boy. for him. Danger. And I was, Danger I was Robinson. given, yeah, yeah. exactly, I was given that task. you were kind of thrilled by that, too. Of course, absolutely. It was familiar, I, right? It was so familiar. I had and been, sort of flattering. I, yes, I'm the oldest daughter. I take care of all the siblings yeah. and the parents. Right. And it was so flattering to be given, because he was 11 years older than me, and for his mother to say, you are going to raise him. Mm-hmm. And I had come from the perfect kind of cultural background where I thought that was a beautiful thing. Yeah. So you have the wisdom of years. You're looking back. You're calling this an abusive relationship. But when did you realize that in the relationship? How did it begin? And when did you start to come to this understanding that you had to get out? So it took me a while because pain and hardship had become so normalized. I was oblivious for a long time until... It was so painful that even I couldn't rationalize it anymore. Mm -hmm. So strangely enough, a year into my marriage, I started waking up with fully constructed essays in my head. And it was as though my inner voice was trying to speak to me. And my job was to just sit down and transcribe them. I didn't even have Microsoft Word then because I wasn't a writer. (laughs) I would just take it down on my notepad on my laptop and... Lo and behold, on my laptop screen, I saw this very clear argument that my inner voice was posing to me. 
So the more I allowed myself to lean into my inner voice, Mm -hmm. she started teaching me about the truth of that relationship. She started letting me pick up on, oh, that's not him saying, oh, I'm doing this for your own good. That's called gaslighting. Yeah. And me saying, you know, it's my duty to be patient and nurturing. That's called denial. And all of my money going into his pocket and into our life together, all into our house, into his car, despite the fact that my name does not appear on any lease, on any contract, that's called coerced captivity. Mm -hmm. And my brain started schooling me. And that was my wake up. When you started having these realizations, Mm -hmm. did you talk to your husband about them? Did you try to say, listen, this isn't healthy we need to change? Or was the realization just, this is abusive, I have to get out of here? No, because I was still in love with him. Mm-hmm. And that that's the real tricky part where, mm-hmm. so my answer is twofold. Yes, I did try to get him to see what I was seeing, you know, and because my, my goal was, well, maybe we can heal and mm-hmm. recover from this and this can bring us closer. We were f- struggling financially. Um, he was out of work. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to give him a chance because he's feeling depressed. And so maybe because he's feeling small, he's trying to make me feel small. And so I did try to get him to to just talk, to go to therapy, to read whatever I was writing. And he said no, and he was unwilling. And that was one of my wake-up calls. When your partner is unwilling to be happy, uh, let alone heal and grow stronger together, I realized there's nothing I can do. Right. And I second-guessed a lot Uh for a long time. And because bullies, I believe, they're governed by insecurity. Abusers are governed by insecurity. And so that's why they'll start to attack the very qualities they initially loved most about you. So the things he started to chip away at was my intelligence, Mm. my capacity for language, my physical appearance, my youth, my ambition, and my work ethic. It's like a dungeon and you enter it and then the dungeon starts filling with poisonous gas. And so whatever self-esteem and self-confidence you had upon entering that dungeon begins to deplete because of that poisonous gas. So you become smaller and smaller and that compounds your ability to stay inside that dungeon Mm -hmm. because you grow weaker and weaker. So the nature of emotional abuse is so covert and stealthy It helps you rationalize and ignore and therefore enable and perpetuate the pain and elongate the pain for a much longer time. I mean, he used to campaign to have different women, to have an open relationship, and he would call them sister wives. And he would say, you know, I'm doing this for your own good because having other women would alleviate the pressure on you to be perfect for me. And it would distribute the task of making me happy onto various girls. And so that is abusive. And yet he positioned it as this loving argument for my well-being, for my ease of mind. Right. It's as if we need to think about emotional abuse as as all those blows that don't leave a mark. Exactly. And we think it's only if a physical bruise acts as a receipt of grief and permission slip to leave. But feeling your heartbreak is reason enough to leave. Right. Yeah.
Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dear Sugars, eight months ago I broke up with my boyfriend of three years. Our relationship had its ups and very many downs. The ups, we had exciting adventures together. We were very romantic and passionate. He has a great sense of humor and our sexual intimacy was strong. The downs, I didn't always feel supported and cared for by him. I didn't feel listened to or appreciated. I felt like I carried the relationship emotionally and definitely carried it financially. In times of conflict, he became cruel. The list of things he did is long, but here are some examples. He'd refuse to eat dinner with me and lock himself in a room over something I said, which was always unclear to me. He'd threaten to leave the relationship. He occasionally called me names like bitch, idiot, and slut. These events, which occurred throughout our relationship, made me feel confused, scared, lonely, and hurt. Afterwards, he'd apologize and I'd push away my feelings of hurt in an effort to fix things. Finally, I couldn't take it anymore and I broke up with him. He was devastated and lashed out. He said things like, I can find women more beautiful than you. Later, he'd say I knew he didn't mean the nasty things he said to me. He'd tell me he loved me and begged me to take him back. He still does this. He desperately wants me back. He says he knows he will never find a woman as good as me. I find myself perplexed. How can someone act like this to someone they say is so amazing? How could he treat me like this when he says he loves me? I still find myself believing he loves me in his own messed up way. Recently, things got even more ugly. We met up after not having seen each other for several months. We had sex, and I got pregnant. I was shocked. What 34-year-old gets pregnant by her ex-boyfriend? I immediately knew I couldn't keep the pregnancy, which was a horrible decision to make, since I do eventually want children. During this time, he was awful to me. He told me he'd sue me if I had an abortion. He said that I didn't have a conscience. On the eve of my abortion, he was drilling me about the two men I have attempted to briefly date since we broke up. He since apologized and said he was wrong. He asked to come help take care of me during my recuperation, but I said no because I couldn't bear to be with someone who treated me so cruelly during such a vulnerable time. And yet, I have a soft spot for him still. I find myself missing him and I ask myself, why? Why would I miss someone who has been the cruelest person in my life? Shouldn't I finally be ready to move on? Sometimes I wonder if my inability to move on from him is a sign that we should give it one more try, though I reject that idea when I consider what it would actually look like. 
It's hard for me to say I was in an abusive relationship when there were happy times of laughter. I wonder if it's harder for me to let go since the relationship was abusive. Did something happen to my mind? I know this man is not good for me, and yet I feel stuck. It takes so much for me not to call him. Daily, I have to convince myself that I shouldn't be with him. I feel alone in this conundrum. My friends are there, but I feel like their support is running on low. My family and friends never liked him because they saw me getting hurt and upset so frequently. I think they're a bit sick of hearing about my relationship with him, and I'm sick of talking about it. My brother recently said, I just don't get it. You've been suffering for four years from this guy. You're wasting your life waffling. I'm in therapy weekly, but it's not seeming to help. What is wrong with me, Sugars? Why haven't I moved on by now? What else can I try to do to let go of this person? Why can't I emotionally understand what I understand logically? Signed, wanting to move on, yet resisting. Mm. That letter is beautifully written and heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's so reminiscent of the story I know and the story I feel many people do go through. She talks about his charisma, his humor, and the passion he brought into her, her life, as well as the pain. And I think that synergy, the duality of pain and passion, that is definitive of the emotionally abusive relationship. And that mm-hmm. right. is definitely a reason, a big component in why we remain attached to that. If you've been raised in a way that has conflated love with pain, you will become all the more capable of yes. falling in love and remaining loyal to characters and lifestyles that bring pain as well as love simultaneously right. into your life. Staying inside a relationship, and she says she's she was with him for three years. So even if she didn't come from a background that conflated love with pain, the normalcy she developed with him was love and pain, pain and passion. And you know, when people say he is my drug or she is my cocaine, that metaphor is a rather logical and accurate metaphor because our bodies, in the same way during addiction, our bodies flood with cortisol, stress, adrenaline, fear, and uncertainty, serotonin, endorphins, the the fleeting joys, mm-hmm. and oxytocin, intimacy. So abusive relationships are addictive because we are going through all of those, that cocktail, that heady cocktail that we become chemically addicted to during substance abuse, exact same cocktail. Well, she says, is my brain different? Right. Right. And and I hear a lot of shame in her voice. It was she's shaming herself. Even the sentence, what 34-year-old woman gets uh, pregnant over that? You know, there's no wronghood in that. (laughs) There's no wrongdoing. And yet... I can hear that maybe she has this predilection towards shaming herself and putting wrongdoing on her chest. Um, And the same at the end where she says, what is wrong with me? She literally says, what is wrong with me? And then on top of that, maybe she holds some some shame or guilt towards that abortion. And her ticket to freedom is understanding that there is no shame in that. There's no wrongdoing in that whatsoever. Because sometimes guilt or shame is a reason why we remain attached to someone because we're atoning ourselves through that punishment, yeah. right? I also think that there's some element that she's a, a healthy, reasonable person. Right. And I know that 
the impulse can be like, well, we can make this work out. Right. We did have these good times together mm. and it doesn't have to be this way. And some of this confusion wanting to move on that you're feeling, I think, is rooted not in your dysfunction. I do think that you've, uh, you know, been, been ensnared in this dungeon that's filled with toxic gases mm-hmm. that that have indeed altered your perspective about what, you know, what you should and accept in a relationship. But I also think that that piece of you that is healthy, that knows what healthy mm. love is, is is sort of in some ways bargaining. And, you know, that right. you're thinking like, maybe this guy isn't so awful after all. Maybe this was just a hard patch mm. or, you know, I, I think that what I hear from so many people who find themselves in emotionally abusive relationships, mm. that they still have that toehold yes. in the healthy world. Right. It can be a different way. I think part of even letting go of healthy relationships is letting go of the vision you once had of the two of you together. Mm-hmm. And that is magnified and compounded and distorted, right. I think, when you've been in an abusive relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was one of my my personal tickets to freedom was realizing I was so attached to the Jekyll and Hyde of him mm-hmm. and right. that, oh, if only I did enough to get him, because I so remembered that that beautiful love and certainty that we began with that she talks about with her relationship. And I realized being attached to a memory of that is like being in love with a closed casket. The story has been made. And I had to let go of that hypothetical, the what if, if only. If he could only be the good stuff instead of the bad stuff, then it would work. Mm -hmm. But he's not that. Right. Right. He's not. So a a couple of things that are important just to try to answer your questions. Please look, wanting to move on, if you will, objectively at the list of good things about this boyfriend. Mm. It is exactly one sentence long. And the list of Mm. abuses to which he subjected you, a sense of how uh, unhappy you've been, how undermined you felt, how humiliated you feel to be in in this circumstance, how isolated you're becoming from your family and friends. And yet there is a thrill to Mm. that. Cheryl, you were talking about this with your friend. There was a thrill to that era that Mm -hmm. was mixed up in how damaged they were and how good and great you had to be to undo that damage. Absolutely. And... There are moments where the abuser recognizes that and says things which feed directly into mm-hmm. that narrative, like, yeah, I right. love you like nobody's yeah. ever loved yes, you before. Absolutely. Every single abuser right. will say that. Yeah, right. of course. Yes. And yeah. they're feeding that. That's that moment where they're saying, you know what? You're the only one who can rescue me. Right. I am too damaged for anybody else to mm-hmm. rescue. And so you can't leave or I'm sunk. It's a kind of hostage situation. It's an illusion of control. Yeah. Actually, um, Leslie Morgensteiner, she's a brilliant writer on these issues. And she coined that phrase, the illusion of control. You know, when, when an abuser says, if you left, I'd die. Nobody understands me the way you do. If you were with anyone else, I, I would kill them. Things like that. So you think you actually do hold power when you actually don't. Mm-hmm. So one thing my ex used to do is in the same way that with wanting to move on, he would compare me to other women as if it was this, uh, we were replaceable pawns. Mm -hmm. And he would also say, you're so lucky to have me because my green card was procured through marriage. And he would call me his wife for realsies on days when he was happy with me. And when he wasn't happy with me, he would call me his wife for greensies to remind me that in his eyes, I had no power to remind me that I, I could be so easily and casually erased and maybe even deported. And I had to realize that at the end of the day, we each have a choice between 
becoming the story we are told or becoming the story we choose to believe. And yes, I have this history of being, you know, told that I'm the world's victim, but I also carry that history of resilience, whether it's as a woman, Mm -hmm. as a marginalized person, as a person of color. And whichever identity I pledge my allegiance to will become my trajectory. And so for wanting to leave, she is between narratives. She gets to choose now. What's her story going to be? Is it is it going to be a story of pain? Or is it going to be a story of how she ascended beyond pain? And that, yes, she was in an abusive relationship. And then she chose a life that did not include abuse anymore, that a love that does not include neglect, mm-hmm. that she doesn't have to make that compromise because none of us should. That's so beautifully said, Rima. Thank you. Thank you. And so wanting to know what Rima just said is you're between these two narratives. And so all of the feelings that you're mm-hmm. having right now about sometimes feeling like you should go back and sometimes feeling like, you know, maybe it wasn't that bad or feeling like you're missing uh, the, the good parts of your old relationship mm-hmm. are a sign that you should try it again. Those are not abnormal feelings. They're actually right. the, yep. the thing that happens to people when they are in the midst of claiming that new narrative. Mm. Mm. And also just remembering that this is going to take time. And in the meanwhile, your job is to learn again how to feel whole, how to love yourself. Sometimes it's a very simple thing that will save us in the minute or the day. In my life, when I've struggled, it's often really helpful for me to attach myself to a mantra, Mm. just a simple phrase. I'm not afraid, or I can do this. Mm. I'm curious if you had anything like that. What did you hold on to, Rima, when you were trying to find your way out? I used to tell myself, only I am the author of my life. That was your mantra? It was, it was. And it felt very audacious to me because I didn't identify as an author back then. So for me to call myself that felt like a triumph in and of itself, even if I was just whispering it in in the privacy of my own mind. I would tell myself, I am the sole author of my life, and every choice I make can be one towards my empowerment or my disempowerment. Mm -hmm. Wow. Dear Sugars, as more women are speaking out through the Me Too movement, it was a relief to know no one was coming out about my former husband. I was glad my children didn't have a dad who was sexually abusive to women. But then my stomach contracted as I remembered all the dismissive things he'd said to me, both during our marriage and after it ended. He said I was crazy and chemically imbalanced. When we went to therapy, he'd tell the therapist everything that was wrong with me. During the 10-year marriage, nothing was ever put in my name because he claimed I was bad with money. When we divorced, he added a clause in our divorce that said I could never say I was married to him or that I'd had children with him. We have four. After I signed my divorce documents, I literally lost my voice for three weeks. Metaphorically, it's taken me almost 20 years to get it back. It's taken me a long time to realize that while I was never sexually abused by him, I was emotionally abused by him and also financially abused. I stayed quiet because of our four children and also because he's in a position of power. I could tell you many good things about him too. A few years ago, after he kicked me out of the house he'd given me but never put in my name, he said, 
I'll continue to support you until you get yourself together. At the time, he was expecting a second child with our former nanny. He has seven kids with three women, and he's called a good father. If I had seven kids with three men, including a former family employee who's 25 years younger than me, I'd be called a slut. The one thing I want now is ownership of my voice. I want to speak up, not to spill his secrets or disparage him, but to speak the truth about my life. In a way, I can now see that I was paid to stay quiet. And with the Me Too movement, I'm seeing other women were too. Non-disclosure agreements were created to protect trade secrets and intellectual property. They shouldn't be used to quiet people, most of them women, who've suffered abuse. I want custody of my voice and my life story, Sugars. Any advice? Signed, Lost My Voice. Mm. Mm. Powerful letter. Powerful. And really speaking, um, you know, directly to that line, I am the author of my life, Mm -hmm. you really try to tell the truth about what this relationship felt like and the ways, very clear-eyed ways in which you can see. And actually, Rima, they echo a lot of what you said about names not being put on leases and so forth. Mm. You know, he knows that he has you. There's power here. This is about power, not love anymore. In a way, if you think about it, those non-disclosure forms and agreements are all about concealing the patriarchy's trade secrets and intellectual property, mm-hmm, the modes right. in by mm. which an abuser exercises their power and distorts what begins as love or poses as love into really a drama of control and recrimination mm-hmm. and, and sadism often. Um, those are the trade secrets of the patriarchy, and women are starting to speak about them, and men are trying to shut them up as quick as they can. Right. And again, uh, we should say... Women, as we know from Cheryl's story, can also be emotionally abusive in relationships. And it's in the LBGTQ community. And it's not, this is an equal opportunity. Mm. I like your formulation of this is about a disparity in power Mm. that is exploited. Mm -hmm. Lost My Voice is touching on such a vital component. Survivors of assault, all of us, we talk about this where it's a three part wound there's a voicelessness, a helplessness, and a lonesomeness. Yeah. And reclaiming authorship, reclaiming voice is such a huge part of the healing and emancipation process. And yes, like you pointed out, though, the system is rigged against women trying to find their voice. And in every interaction, every transaction, Mm -hmm. there is the awareness of that. Mm -hmm. So here's the language in this. A few years ago, after he kicked me out of the house he'd given me, Mm. I am dependent on him, but never put in my name. What I mean to say is that the way that he's constructed it is you are both dependent on me and incapable of supporting yourself. You need me to subsidize you in order to, you know, you need some time to figure your stuff out. You're the person who's broken in this relationship. The evidence of that is that you are economically dependent on me. Mm -hmm. The relationship that you had lost my voice had so kind of shifted your Mm -hmm. sense of your power in the world. It had disappeared you so completely that you said, well, of course I'll uh, sign a, a divorce decree that says I can't even say that I have children with you. Well, but the good news is that lost my voice is not saying, mm. well, I still have feelings for him. And sometimes I wish that we could right. make it work out. She's saying, Mm-mm. I'm yeah. seeing this more clearly now right? within the context of these this powerful social movement. Um, and I and I want to note about the Me Too movement. Women have been saying Me Too for a long time. Yes. Uh, the shift isn't that women are speaking up. 
Mm. The shift is that women are being listened to. Yes. But, you know, this has inspired many people and given people the courage Mm -hmm. and the confidence to say, this happened to me and I'm not going to be silent anymore and I want custody of my voice. Mm. And so, you know, this to me uh, lost my voice. This is a very... I'm excited by your letter and and wanting to leave. I hope you're listening really carefully to mm. this because this is a woman who's a, a bit further down the path outside of this relationship and is starting to find her footing. Mm. And I, I think you ask us in a kind of general sense for advice about how, how you get that custody of your voice. And the first thing I can say to you is do just what you're doing with us. Start talking start singing, start breathing in that air that doesn't have any dungeon gas. (laughs) You've made it out of the dungeon. Right. Right. And what you get to do is tell the truth about your life. And every last one of us gets to do that. Mm. And it's so strange to me how far we need to, so many of us need to travel to that truth. But once you have it and lost my voice, I know you have it. I can see that in your letter. Um, There's no going back. Yes. You know, the voicelessness, lonesomeness, and helplessness, she is claiming her voice by authoring this letter. She is putting her story into words. So she's seeing her authorship with her own eyes. And then I feel that being of service, using your past to be of service to others, to build community, community is the antidote to lonesomeness. So you're taking care of that part of the wound. And service is the antidote to helplessness, which is the other part of the wound that comes through abuse where you realize, no, I actually do have value. I am making impact on other people's lives by turning my past into purpose, by repurposing my pain into power for someone else mm-hmm. and myself. Mm-hmm. The the number of things that you've endured mm-hmm. in, in a long, painful marriage and humiliating uh, divorce and life after marriage feels to me sufficient to telling that story if you can afford to in a therapeutic setting because when you are struggling and have been so denuded and erased for so long, you need a space where the person on duty there is there to listen to your story. Mm-hmm. That therapeutic setting for many people, I speak personally, is like a safe space mm. where you can start to find your voice. Yeah. Right. You know, one of the questions, lost my voice, that you don't ask us directly, but I feel it there right under the surface. You, you sort of allude to it. When you talk about how you you don't want to spill his secrets or disparage him, but you want to tell the truth about your life. And of course, I think all three of us know this dilemma well. When you write memoir or personal essays, inevitably, you're up against this. In order for me to talk honestly about my life, I have to talk about the people in it. And that's always very complicated. And I think it's, it's much more complicated when the thing you have to say about the person is unflattering Mm. and in some cases criminal. Mm -hmm. You know, when I've had to write about my dad, who was physically, sexually, emotionally abusive, I've had to say, make essentially, you know, accusations against him without the intent being disparagement, but the intent being speaking the truth about my life. And, you know, what I want to say to you about that lost my voice is that so far what you've done is you've protected your ex-husband's reputation mm. at the expense of your ability to live an honest life. Right. And you don't need to do that anymore. One of the things that I remember often when I make that decision to tell the truth 
is that the truth is an absolute defense. Mm. That there are going to be people, when and if you do make these disclosures about your ex, who aren't going to believe you, who are going to think you have made up the story or you have, you know, that you do want to disparage your ex. But you know what the truth is. Mm. And you don't need to explain yourself to others. You don't need to convince them of your truth. You get to tell your story. Absolutely. Well, Rima, you have been amazing. Thank you so much. It was an honor and a delight to be here. Not only do we thank you, but we want to say to Lost My Voice and wanting to move on, um, and all the other letter writers who we heard from, we hope that you've listened to this, that you'll reach out. We'll have a link to this site that really is a precise description of what an emotionally abusive relationship is. So we hope you'll find that in addition to finding your voice. Yeah, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, thehotline.org. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our editor is Paige Cowett. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hedding. Special thanks to Stella Tan. We recorded this show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon, with our engineer, Josh Milliman. Our mix engineer is Eddie Cooper. Our theme music is by Wonderly, with vocals by Liz Weiss. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. You can send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. And please check out our column, The Sweet Spot, at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. Mm-hmm.